This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What are the key priorities driving digital transformation across the U.S. Department of Defense? How does zero trust undergird the entire DOD digital modernization effort? And what does the future hold for DOD's information enterprise? I'll explore these questions and so much more with my very special guest, Lily Zalecki, Acting Deputy Chief Information Officer, Information Enterprise at the U.S. Department of Defense. Lily, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us a little bit more about the mission of your office and how it supports the overall mission? of the U.S. Department of Defense? Well, I see the deputy CIO for uh, Information Enterprise, which is the office I lead, um, as an enabler uh, for the department of a seamless and secure use of information and data uh, uh, to solidify um, an operational advantage, establish a more reliable and resilient IT foundation infrastructure, if you will, backbone, in support of a more mobile and remote workforce, as well as for the warfighter. I sort of look at it as from, you know, back office to boots on the ground. Um, It it also requires a lot of partnership and collaboration uh, to maintain these critical activities. Um, And we have, you know, existing systems and we're futuristic looking as an organization. So we, uh, the information enterprise and modernization are at the forefront um, of what we do and enable uh, for the department. Lily, what are your specific duties and responsibilities as acting deputy CIO for information enterprise at DOD? And perhaps you can share with us a day in the life, a week in the life of of somebody in this role. Well, um, first I'll start by saying, sorry, you know, as I explained, uh, we enable a department-wide execution of strategic guidance and um, operationally effective, but also fiscally responsible. Uh, so that there's that piece of it. Um, so we enable IT policy guidance, but that doesn't mean like we write a piece of paper and throw it across the board. Uh, it requires <laughs> and, and then expect people to sort of just um, pick it up and implement. I mean, we oversee and manage ongoing enterprise IT capabilities um, and the modernization and reform initiatives. For example, various architecture for implementation, enterprise architecture. So there is the implementation piece that we oversee. And, and, and as oversight, I think it's such a, a nebulous word that people think, oh, gosh, you know, they're going to sit in the glass house. And but what we really do is when I tell people oversee means, you know, I'm your enabler. I'm, I, I remove barriers, but also I'm the guard. You know, I'm the one that says, here's the guardrail. Like, don't fall off the cliff. Right. So uh, as an overseer, I have all these responsibilities on a daily basis, but also, um, you know, my team 
within the DCIO IE, uh, just being taking care of people and the people that enable and uh, and and the smart people that work on all the projects that we do, uh, and uh, leading them and guiding them in a way uh, that makes sense. You know, these are the things that Lily does. You know, day to day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. I was wondering, you know, with your duties and responsibilities and a, and a portfolio that's enterprise wide across such a huge uh, entity as the U.S. Department of Defense, what would you say are maybe maybe your top three management challenges that you have faced in your position? And and more importantly, how have you sought to address those challenges? So I, I would say I will look at building relationships is a critical piece of uh, my job. So um, it is a challenge and an opportunity, especially when you're, um, even though I've been in the department for 23 plus years uh, in different roles, um, most of it really honestly in spectrum, RF frequency spectrum policy and management. So this community that I'm dealing with from a, a very, uh, heavy IT uh, uh, software uh, network kind of uh, implementation perspective is is I'm I'm a I'm a newcomer so building relationships almost from scratch not quite but um, from scratch is a challenge but I also see that as honestly as an opportunity because you know I can claim I'm new. For, for a bit. I think I'm running out of that card, but but it, it really is honestly um, a, a such a privilege and an opportunity, but a great challenge because this portfolio and implementing um, information uh, flow, you know, from end to end, you know, vertically across and enabling such, you know, advanced technology in the future we are looking for uh, with, re- with regards to whether you say cloud migration or software modernization, it requires people, processes, um, and the ability to communicate and to get people on board into change and transformation. It, it's it's huge. So building relationships, really a challenge and an opportunity. Collaboration is one of them. I am I am a huge advocate and not surprising our stakeholders with new ideas, you know, introduce them right up front, you know, work, work and walk hand in hand with our stakeholders. That is so big for me. So but it takes a huge lift, as you uh, mentioned, you know, with our just big department uh, to to make that happen is a massive lift. And, you know, when we introduce and develop and make decisions, I would really like, I like to have the stakeholders at the table, make sure that we hear their voice and make sure that we take into account and at a minimum consider um, their challenges and their, you know, they face the same challenges. I mean, when you look at the military departments, they're an enterprise on their own let alone now we all integrate and try to walk together on a lot of these enterprise related matters. So, you know, collaboration is so critical to me. You know, I use both formal and informal uh, ways. In fact, I advocate very much informal um, approaches and just bringing people to the table, calling people up and saying, you know, how do we move past these things? Um, And, and, you know, we're always not going to agree on everything and and you know we have competing 
um, trade-offs that we have to make in different areas. Each of the military departments, the OSD organizations have their mandates, not just uh, from a mission standpoint uh, within DOD, but you know globally. Um, so it is imperative. Collaboration is a challenge and an opportunity in, in, you know, in my lane. Um, but the other one that, you know, from a substantive uh, point of view that I would like to point out is really, uh, I see uh, our office and honestly, DOD CIO in general, but this role as the glue between, you know, our current state and the future state. And really, we're walking that, you know, we're, we're, we're going to be in the in between. We're the glue that tries to, you know, uh, bring the the current and existing systems and try to walk them to the future. And honestly, I know you hear a lot about technical debt, but that's what it really means. We have a lot of legacy systems. Uh, and when we talk about cloud and, you know, modern software practices, you hear software factories, DevSecOps, you know, AI, ML, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all of these things for these things to be, you know, connected and seamless in the inf information enterprise in our future norm, we still must consider these existing capabilities uh, that were never built with these, you know, amazing capabilities and, and technologies in mind. But that doesn't mean that we don't need them. You know, people ask me, like, how many systems do you need to do your job? Well, as many as we have, because that's what we're, it's taking to do our job right now. So really, these systems were built um, you know, in a time that we may not have cloud and software, but we got to find a way to, you know, make sure that we're not dragging or, you know, carrying our technical debt, but also we don't want to break mission. So, you know, in my office, that is one of the areas. And I will point like as an example, defense business systems, right? That's one of the things in my portfolio. I mean, we have like, I mean, I, I would say like between, 1500 and 1800 defense business systems where, you know, we got to figure out a way to walk the walk to make sure that we don't break uh, because these business systems enable many of our war, war fighters and, you know, logistics uh, and uh, FM and all these um, requirements that, that we need to do the fight. So uh, in my office, one of the things that, you know, I'm continuing to do is, that we do the assessments the right way. We rationalize the right way and not rush into um, these kinds of decisions to, you know, whether it's to uh, phase out a system or or uh, replace. But a lot of them, they're not even, we're, we may not be able to move them to the cloud, for example, for cloud migration. So we've got a lot of assessments and in and, and methodical wise decisions that we have to make as we walk you know, the walk in this in this area. So really, um, the challenge that I see is, you know, walking between the current and the future state. But I will tell you, we will likely live in the in the in between for a very long time. So that's my job, really, the in between, uh, making sure that we are the glue. Yeah, the glue that, that keeps it together and makes it operational. Yeah. See, you know, with such an important portfolio, as I mentioned earlier, and you outlined very eloquently, what has surprised you most since taking over this leadership role? And I wish I have like a really creative answer for that one. Honestly, like <laughs> what's what every time what surprises me is that 
the challenges and the problems we face in every area that I've dealt with uh, in the department, I can tell you I've taken different, you know, diverse roles. Um, I'm a, a, an engineer by trade. I've done radio frequency spectrum and broadband policy and um, regulation for a very long time. In fact, that is really where I lived for a long time. And then I've even dabbled in resourcing and budget and now, you know, heavy into IT and digital modernization. I don't know why, but I get surprised every time I'm in a new role that the challenges we face thread across and they're pretty much the same challenges across the board. And honestly, really, um, it comes down to when you try to make change, you know, it involves processes, cultures that are embedded. And really, that's where we, you know, we go back to and having to, that is the area we struggle the most and to change. So, you know, it's, it surprises me, but honestly, like, from a substantive standpoint, there's not a whole lot that has surprised me so far. But I've only been sitting in this particular seat for six months. So you, you did allude a little bit to your background. I was wondering if you could delve a little deeper. Could you tell us more about yourself, your career path, and 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 even more about how your previous experiences in your other roles have kind of informed the way you're leading in this one? I would say that um, I'm an engineer by trade. So I'm an electrical engineer. I have a systems engineering master's degree. I have been in, you know, a technical realm since my internship days. And I don't want to age myself, but many moons ago. And I've been in DOD CIO for, for 13 years. So I've, as I've sort of alluded to, um, I have done Spectre for a very long time. Really, that's where I, I actually thought I was going to just, you know, work and, live and retire out of, but here we are in a completely different role, but also I've done resourcing and how I got there is really sort of as a detailee, I, I thought, you know, I really need to learn budget and that's how I ended up in the budget world. So that path took me here in CIO to our resources and analysis, uh, deputy CIO, which I ended up um I, I sort of traveled a path in there. Actually, I went in as sort of a detailee. I ended up becoming an IT budget um, portfolio manager for one of the big military departments. And then I um, instituted uh, a directorate that dealt with uh, the program budget reviews and the budget certification and all, um, all sort of program budget review kind of things. And then uh, I became the director of the program budget, the internal budget, and all these other things that I actually instituted a group for. So I became the director there, and then I became the acting resources deputy for Chris Condon, the deputy's um, CIO for resources. Uh, so that led me then to have a broader perspective, because the spectrum is a pretty narrow niche technical field. It led me to this particular position. And I've been here uh, for now almost a year. And um, it's been a journey. And really, what I want to really emphasize here is it, that it doesn't really require like a very uh, meticulous technical knowledge of every piece of the uh, areas I've touched, like I said, I went into budget and this has really honestly made me a more well-rounded um, 
uh, leader. But to be a, a great leader, you don't have to be, you know, a straight A student or a genius. So I've traveled a really, um, you know, surprising and unexpected windy road to get to where I am today. In fact, I wanted to tell a story and I actually shared this with Pam and I was like, do you think I should tell it? So when I was in college and engineering school, I'd only been in this country for six years um, and um, I got a D in one of my engineering courses and I went to um, my uh, advisor and I said, I really need help. And I was looking for help and how I'm going to, you know, progress. My advisor looked me in the face and told me that I should change my major and I probably won't make it as an engineer. So now here we are. Uh, I've been an engineer for many, many years and um, I'm leading technology. So I just want to encourage people like the path may be windy and the climb up is never you know, a step up ladder, but the journey is amazing. So I just wanted to share that um, in the journey that I've traveled. That's a great segue into my next question about how you lead. Given that background, given your path that you've taken, uh, how do you lead? What are the characteristics that you've seen through folks who've mentored you to be an effective leader? And perhaps you could share some of the principles that you follow. I love that question and and the fact that you mentioned mentors because, I mean, I'm not where I am today without the people that have paved the way and also, you know, uh, the people that I've watched as well as mentored me personally to get to where I am. So really being authentic is so important to me, like being real and bringing what you can, but then also being transparent and saying here's the area that I don't have and not just on everything that we can do, but, but the areas that we can't do where people have to augment being respectful, trustworthiness is so important to me being graceful because honestly, I've needed a lot of grace and patience, (laughs) you know, through my path, but also I've had to give that. And this role, especially in, in, the kind of customer service oriented service delivery kind of role, uh, patience and grace are just imperative, uh, but integrity and in, in what we deliver, you know, not promising what I cannot deliver and only, you know, striving for excellence and being able to give, you know, what, what I can give from my seat, being, you know, solution oriented and, you know, no shouldn't be the answer. It should be how, how can we make, make it work and then remove barriers. But sometimes barriers may not be, uh, we may not be able to remove them. So acknowledge, recognize and find a different path, you know, so leading with authenticity is so important to me and just being real and what I know and what I don't know and, you know, what can be done and partnering with people, um, Also, work-life balance is so critical to me. I'm a mama of a daughter uh, who's so brilliant, and and, um, she's 12 years old. Um, I'm a wife. I'm a sister. I'm a daughter. You know, I'm a colleague. uh, I'm a friend. Um, So it can't all be about work. And also, my faith is very important to me, so it anchors me. These are the things that, that drive me and get me out of bed excited every morning because I, I strive for excellence. But, 
you know, I really want to remain humble uh, because that's the only way I can see, you know, where my, um, you know, blind sides are and, and be able to lead in a way that is empathetic and uh, graceful. What are the key priorities for driving digital transformation across the DOD enterprise? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lily Zalecki, Acting Deputy Chief Information Officer, Information Enterprise at the U.S. Department of Defense. You, you've shared with us the mission, the important mission, the enterprise mission that you are leading and, and enabling the DOD to realize uh, to keep the country secure. So I'm wondering, what are the key strategic priorities in your portfolio? So right now... Um... One of the biggest ones that we're driving is a software modernization implementation. Um, the deputy signed out the strategy about a year ago, and it lays, it lays out foundational things to the, the cloud and software, uh, you know, modern software uh, paths that we, you know, I alluded to earlier, but that that is our future where we're heading, where I talked about the, you know, the to be. And honestly, we're slowly walking it already. So that is really a big initiative area. In addition, uh, business systems, I, I mentioned earlier. So those are the, you know, the today, the current. Um, uh, it's not just business systems, really IT existing uh, IT systems, but we're focused on business systems uh, right now because, I, like I said, um, it is it is sort of an area where the technical debt is very quantifiable, or at least we can see it, and we need to start really getting after that. So that is also a focus area. Um, and many of the things that I mentioned here really, you know, focus on workforce is also a challenge, and that um, we're going to have to deal with workforce processes. So these are really um, the, the as is and the future and the in between what are the barriers that we are going to have to deal with the process changes, the, you know, upskilling and and um, the workforce piece, as well as um, the people piece, you know, taking care of our people, um, because without the people, you know, it, none of this really uh, is matters or even uh, is possible. 
You know, what are the specific internal drivers and maybe external trends that shape and inform your vision, and, and I, I like it, to deliver resilient software capabilities at the speed of relevance? And how did you come up with that? Oh, yeah. Well, I wish I could claim that one. <laughs> the strategy was released before I got here, well, right before I got here. But really, um, that goes to actually to the two big things I keep emphasizing. It seems to be emerging as a theme for, for this uh, discussion today, but is really legacy capabilities, uh, you know, provide the challenge, but also we have to walk that path to get to our future um, and work methodically to get to the future. So um, that is really the internal and external drivers are in that wrapped up in that that we are we have to address our existing capabilities and legacy capabilities and all the processes that come with it that are all internal and, and uh, to some extent external because we you know we are uh, fulfilling statutory mandates um the global drivers of where we are um you know uh, with the cyber war that we are fighting now and not just a face-to-face -face war um but also our ability to just continue to advance in technology so we can get the information to to uh, the stakeholders, to the warfighter, to the boots on the ground uh, as quickly as they need it to make, you know, data-driven decision that is not, you know, having to bounce back from network to network to, you know, latency for them to get. So really that's how I look at you know, our world right now is we're toggling between what it is now and what we want in the future. But in between, we're incrementally delivering um, to the warfighter capabilities that are making it better and better. And, and ultimately, hopefully, uh, we'll get to that future state of seamless and, you know, maybe instantaneous and, and you know, a lot of automation and AIML. Those those are the driver um the drivers, internal and external. That's great. And I was wondering, perhaps you could, for the audience, kind of walk them through the DOD software modernization strategy. And how does it seek, as you just alluded to, to kind of speed up software delivery times and steer better coordination across all of these services? So the DOD software modernization strategy laid out three goals. Um, the first goal is accelerate the DoD enterprise cloud environment. What that means is really the ability to um, have the ready access to um, the uh, industry capability and the service capabilities that that cloud offers. So one of the things that we're doing, and you've heard about the joint warfighter cloud capability, JWCC, um, in the works, uh, it's it's um, a multi-cloud, multi-vendor, um, uh, direct acquisition ability to have direct acquisition from the cloud service providers, uh, the services and capabilities that we need in the you know from in the cloud. Um, that is really the kind of things that this accelerate. Um, uh, the DoD Enterprise Cloud environment brings to us, and this this is cr so critical because we need to have this cloud, uh, our ability to you know traverse in the cloud from 
not just CONUS, to OCONUS outside of the continental United States, which I think you may have heard referred to as the tactical edge. Um, we need to have that seamless um, uh, global uh, connectivity. And that's really what it's, this is going to drive. And one of the things I want to emphasize here is when we talk information enterprise and collaboration capabilities and the kind of things we talk about, these are services and contracts and people. So a lot of the work that goes on requires really um, flexible ways to acquire these services and capabilities. The things that gets us out of the business of doing cloud and, and to the business of doing the mission, for example. So that really helps us in that regard. And the other, uh, the second goal is to establish a department-wise software factory ecos ecosystem. And the, what that is, is really being able to institute uh, modern software practices like DevSecOps. And what that stands for is really sort of combining and integrating the development, the cybersecurity, the security piece, and the ops um, the folks that are working on those and the systems and integrating them so we have quicker decision, quicker delivery, uh, quicker identification of problems and being able to institute the security right through and bake it across, you know, end to end in development to operation. And that enables us to deliver the so develop and deliver the software and just continue to update the software and more um we're not at real time yet, but but near real time. Uh, so that is the software factories um, ecosystem and um, being able to advance that. Um, and really, how many software factories does it take? Well, it takes as many as it takes for us to be able to do our mission is really where we're at with that. Um, and then the goal three is transform processes uh, to enable resilient and resilience and speed. So I think I touched on that, but really this is what we're talking about when we talk the DOD processes of current, you know, the current processes have to evolve the way we acquire systems. That's why we work hand in hand with the acquisition community to make sure that the way we acquire software uh, changes because our current acquisition processes have a lot of steps that we have to go through. And, you know, for ships and planes, it works. For software, not so much. So we have to um, evolve the way we acquire software. Um, in addition, you know, how we develop, again, R&D processes, you know, what worked for ships and jets, like I said, is not working for software. So that's why we need like the software factories and the DevSecOps practices, uh, the, you know, software containers so we can reuse uh, and not have to reinvent every time uh, the ability to, you know, to uh, utilize what we've delivered and done already and not, uh, not continue to uh, tie up in processes. Um, as the same with, uh, you know, um, cybersecurity. So we want to, for example, uh, the continuous authorization to operate is one of the things that we're, you know, a very heavy working, uh, which will enable, you know, the ability to have that authorization. If we're talking DevSecOps, that authorization on a continuous basis, because you're continuously checking and rechecking through automation and through continuous monitoring to be able to do those things. So 
these are the things. And of course, the workforce, the um, process I talked about, um, you know, falls into the transformation of processes to be to be able to um, uh, do the things that we've outlined in goal one and two. And this is going to be sort of an inc- we're going to walk this incrementally when we come out with the implementation plan. It's going to be, you know, uh, probably for every couple of years, we're going to update it. It's going to have to be agile. And agile just means that you're, you know, you're able to pivot if necessary without breaking mission and without losing too much time. So that's the way we're also even looking at the implementation plan. So that's, um, that's in a nutshell, uh, what our software uh, modernization strategy uh, lays out. That's wonderful. Um, great context. And I want to combine a couple of questions, follow-up questions that I had, because you introduced a couple of uh, concepts and a couple of things that maybe folks, our listeners aren't familiar with. So, you know, maybe you could tell us what are software factories and, you know, regarding DevSecOps and the practices, how have these factories sort of embraced that concept in the modernization journey? So uh, those are great questions, Michael. Um, the software factories, I say it's the same factory that develops these, you know, warfighting capabilities or ships and planes. However, we're, we're really integrating now the folks that do cybersecurity, the folks that develop the software, the folks that, you know, maybe, you know, test them, the folks that uh, ultimately operate them and bring them closer, so they are doing their their uh, their coordinating, and we're not having to pass off from you know process to process, uh, which takes time, but also introduces uncertainties in many ways. So it's it's cutting out the the middle time, the middle process, the middle man, uh, automating a lot of these things. Um, it's not in a perfect state, but really that's what the software factories aim to do. And that's where we would like that to be a normal practice in the department eventually, because then we're able to um, have all the capabilities in one place. And it doesn't mean that, you know, the way you build ships and the way you build planes, you have the same kind of construct, but you, you have variations there but you can develop software factories for ships, maybe for planes, for capability areas. So this is how we're looking at it. It's a developing, you know, um, I would even say it's not a concept. It's not just a concept anymore. We are implementing it across, uh, but we're working to evolve it and and make it better and better. But really that's what software factories are because we we've been doing software for years it's not like we're just beginning to do software so we're just making it better and cutting out unnecessary steps i'm not saying they were not necessary at one point but now we have technologies like ai and ml ml and and automation and other things that enable us to you know advance uh quicker get products out quicker update you know um software much quicker. So these are the things that software factories, DevSecOps, when you hear things like that, I'll even throw another one, infrastructure as code, uh, which is basically like the ability to lay out an infrastructure, you know, uh, once you have it laid out and, and, and you know, uh, developed, then you 
you shouldn't have to keep repeating the same process. So, you know, if you package that in a nice way and, and containerize it, then others can use it. So these are the, the amazing things that, you know, these smart people are doing and what I'm trying to help advance, you know, from my seat, you know, trying to remove barriers, but also you make sure that we're not going too fast to the point where, you know, we implode. Um, so these, these are the things. Yeah. It's a balancing act to really evolve. And, you know, it's a great transition to the next question I had, which is, you know, moving to the cloud, as I understand it, is integral to the department's modernization efforts. But but as you said in many uh, conversations, it's not about cloud for cloud's sake. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit, maybe us a window into the department's cloud strategy, and perhaps you could outline, more importantly, the benefits of pursuing a hybrid and or multi-cloud approach. So I... I- it's such a great question because it wraps up in a really nice bow the things I'm talking about right now, right? The things that I've mentioned already. So when we talk hybrid, you know, it it's it sounds sort of nebulous, but it's really that connecting tissue that I talked about because you have legacy capabilities here that you know, as we continue to rationalize and to assess and to, you know, continuously move applications into the cloud, we find that some of them may not be able to move. So you're going to have to, you know, do an on-premise or a data center uh, and, and, you know, maybe upgrade that capability to make sure that these systems can be as efficient and as modified as possible, but they may not be able to move to a commercial cloud. So that gap and that need for both, you know, the on-prem and maybe even the data centers and then the commercial cloud, that is the hybrid uh, world that we live in right now. So that is really the world that we, uh, me and my seat here, must balance, as you say, and and must implement um, as we integrate the future, um, you know, with our existing and with our past and all the systems that we have today. And, and as we uh, interconnect them, as we make uh, delivery of s- services at a, at a maybe enterprise level, not everything can be enterprised, by the way. Uh, you know, I, as an information enterprise leader, you know, some may want me to say like, everything must be, you know, no, we sometimes, you know, we got to federate, we got to let folks do what they do best. So we give them a common, uh, you know, layer of architecture, a common layer of uh, requirements, a technical requirements, operational requirements, business requirements, and then allow them to connect to that, to that layer. So these are these are the things that makes uh, the need for where we are today in our world, um, you know, for the hybrid approach and the multi-cloud, as I explained earlier, it, it means that, you know, the ability to have the various cloud uh, service offerings uh, from the different CSPs um, and um uh, you know our 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 services and and the department across the board has variations of um, cloud offerings and JWCC brings um, additional complementary offerings, including uh, the ability to do across all classification levels, unclass, secret, 
and top secret and and also being to get out all the way to the tactical edge, which is really, really a challenging one for us, especially for boots on the ground where they're disconnected and remote areas, the ability to do that. And that's actually an area of challenge we're still tackling, but that is uh, the other piece that that we look at. So when you look at these variations and and uh, requirements and and just the vastness of the mission requirement itself, that it is not a one swoop like everyone pick up and go to the cl- it doesn't work that way. And really, the software modernization implementation plan and the things I laid out earlier recognize that. And this is really a walk. Uh, We're going to have to walk and some of the things we may figure out that we have to pivot in different ways, Uh, but that is really um, what we're embarking on and and, uh, we're going to do. Well, it's a a sagacious uh, way to do it because you got to set expectations and you got to make sure um, it's great to be pie in the sky, but if you, but it's an easy way to fail if you, if you, if you, you know, so the, one question I do have is, is a quick follow-up is what is the role of your office in the joint war fighting cloud capability effort? Just wondering if there's anything, what are you doing in with that? Are you, is that, is that in your portfolio? Is that something you're collaborating? Yeah. So it is in my portfolio. So cloud is in general, cloud um, in general is in my portfolio and the joint warfighting capability is uh, obviously it's a it's a department enterprise wide cloud capability so anything enterprise uh, we are overseers and you know honorable sherman is uh, very this is one of his high priorities to make sure that we deliver a multi cloud for the department and this as our service arm uh, they're the leaders the actually they're um uh, a hack who who does the computing. I think you've talked to Sharon. I've heard the interview, which was awesome. Um, so they they actually um, uh, are the service arm. So we're we're JWCC is as a partnership uh, that is supported all the way up the chain here, and it's a critical critical enabler to all the things we talk about of enabling JADC2, the joint all domain command and control that is interconnecting all of our um, command and control amongst all of at the enterprise level. So that is the vision of the department, as you know, and and it's really a reality in some ways, but we're going to advance it in so many ways with uh, artificial intelligence and AI and ML and data um, you know, the CDAO just got stood up um, not too long ago, and they they're already running with these concepts and requirements. So, JWCC is an imperative enabler to all of this, uh, and that's why our office is the central point and the critical um, uh, policy office for an, an oversight office for that. How does Zero Trust undergird the entire DoD digital modernization effort? I'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. 
Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Lily Zalecki, Acting Deputy Chief Information Officer, Information Enterprise at the U.S. Department of Defense. So, Lily, you mentioned moving to the cloud isn't just about technology. It brings along with it process, budget, and reskilling implications. To that end, can you tell us more about the process that you're using to decide what assets stay uh, legacy and what moves to the cloud? Yes. Um, so I will give as an example the initiative that we've already implemented, cloud and data center reform, which is really uh, we have we've had a bunch of data centers. I'm talking hundreds of data centers, and we've been able to close uh, several data centers, not several hundreds of data centers, to be able to move the applications from the data centers to the cloud, to cloud uh, providers and cloud services. So what that means is really, we have to look at all the applications that are in the data, that are hosted in the data centers. We have to rationalize. We have to know if they're, you know, lift and shift or if there needs to be a modification done to them or, or it's, uh-oh, we can't really move it. So it's gonna have to stay here. Uh, so that is what rationalization really means. So we have to rationalize and then we have to make decisions because it costs money to move. Uh, you know, a lot of times we hear, you know, moving to the cloud, it's going to save you dollars. True in the long run, but really our ability to get into the cloud and be able to do um, to do cloud in a way that it's designed to do, it's going to be, it's going to cost us up front. So you got to determine the cost piece of it. And then timing, because you've got to, when, when we do, when we do things a new way, we got to make sure that concurrently we're doing the current thing and whether it's system, you know, design system development or replacement, you still have to do the old one until you know, the new one works really well. So there is that piece of it too. There's a lot of complex um, uh, considerations that go into when we talk about migration or transformation, and especially as a, a big department as the DOD. So the cloud and data center reform and, and migration that we've accomplished, uh, to me, is one of the biggest um, biggest ones in the department. And where I go back, you know, ones that we're going to tackle in a very similar way is defense business systems. And, you know, I really don't, you know, I don't want to say like we will start from the system because we need them, right? As I stated earlier, we need all these systems. That's why they exist. They meet a mission. So we got to 
figure out, you know, our um, architecture and we got to relook at our enterprise architecture. Uh, we got to um, talk to the stakeholders, what's important to them, the business processes. And we got to set that up end to end where we're going to be able to now look and, and inventory and uh, rationalize um, all of these systems to be able to decide and know exactly how um, we're going to move them. Again, it could be redesign, it could be, um, you know, replace, it could be, you know, just let the system live out its life. Uh, there's a lot of considerations that go into this, but really that's the kind of methodical look that it takes for us to be able to transition. It sounds when folks talk about, you know, cloud migration and transition and transformation, it sounds simple, but even for really a small size organization, it's a very, very challenging, very cumbersome. It touches many organizations, many processes, many requirements. And then there are interconnections, right? These systems that, you know, I talk about, they also talk to other systems. So there's interoperability that you have to consider. There's many things to consider. So that is really the process that we go through and we look at um, as we, you know, think cloud migration or any kind of transformation, really. And the other thing you need to look at uh, is securing these systems. I, oh, absolutely. Cybersecurity is backbone. I mean, like, that is non-negotiable, right? Why, I, you know, why I don't even, you know, I hadn't focused on that is like cybersecurity is non-negotiable. So for these systems, I talk about defense business systems, and I normally focus on the cloud and software. But honestly, these systems have to be cyber secure. I don't care how old they are, regardless. So it is imperative. Cybersecurity's backbone. That's why really our cybersecurity strategy from the department, uh, the zero trust is imperative, especially when we talk about moving to the cloud. Um, it's imperative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, another aspect besides, you know, zero trust, cyber, uh, the, the cloud itself, the implementation is, you know, making a dent in what we, you've alluded to it earlier, the technical debt is key. And I'm wondering, to what extent are you strengthening and enhancing in your portfolio um, the capital investment process or to make sure that what you're doing is mission aligned and cost justified? So um, that's a wonderful question uh, because it is not a simple process I just laid out. And really, we don't have like a plethora of people doing this. So one of the things I've done in my portfolio within IE, we've put a senior executive to actually lead this, who's had this experience over many years, Ms. Laura Muchmore. Um, she's amazing. Uh, and really, she's leading the team and laying out plan that I, I'm very proud of, and hopefully that we will begin to implement immediately. The other piece is really because we are not, we don't have, you know, hundreds of people doing architecture or being able to set up a process where we can do everything at the enterprise level. We're setting up a, a way in, in that we enable the functionals, we enable the components to be able to do what they do best and what they're funded for. And that what they're already doing really, and all they need is really this common 
guidance and common requirements and common capabilities. So that is really what we're aiming to do is to empower, to enable um, uh, the entire department in a, in a structured way where we're, we're going to attack this technical debt in, in a way that we have not done before. Could I switch gears and talk about acquisition? I just get like to get your perspective on on what is being done to accelerate how the department acquires software products and services. So um, that is an you know I, I I said earlier that that's an area that we are partnering with the acquisition community within OSD um, and uh, the research and engineering part too because they have a, a lot of interconnections inter there. So one of the things that's being done and we we have a policy out now is the acquisition, software acquisition pathway. What that really means is cutting out all, as I said earlier, like our current acquisition processes have so many steps for software that needs to turn quick, that needs to be agile. It doesn't work. So we got to cut out, you know, the milestone, this milestone, that for software and be able to still maintain the right level of cybersecurity, the right level of, you know, all the gates that we need to meet and still be able to deliver. So that is one of the things that that has come out of this. And the other piece why I mentioned our research and engineering group is a lot of times we pour money and we do research and engineering and R&D, but it doesn't transition to implementation or to a product. So if you've heard of the value of death, that's really what it is. So we're working with them to make sure that this software acquisition pathway actually helps us you know, get get across that that valley and start bringing, you know, materializing the capabilities that we need and and get over that hump. Um, so that is an area that we're working with with both of um, the OSD partners. In that, like I said, that is more outside of my lane, but that we are partnering and uh, with them uh, to do that. So, Lily, are there any other key accomplishments you'd like to highlight, and what does the future hold for your office? So, uh, again, I think the software modernization implementation plan is our major initiative that we're driving, which will result in many different um, areas that we're going to address. I think I mentioned infrastructure, infrastructure as code to sort of be the backbone of some of the things that we talk about, like zero trust, because you got to do things at speed. You got to do uh, things to to uh, turn very quickly. Um, also, the tactical edge, being able to address, being able to get information from end to end globally is going to be the most critical piece in, in our implementation uh, of um, software and cloud and all these things we talk about. So the OCONUS uh, cloud strategy was released in May 2021, and we are really doing um, a lot of things in that area, which I hope will hopefully be able to reveal more and more as we do the implementation plan, but we're doing pilot testing for the tactile edge to be able to support the warfighter wherever they are, where they are disconnected and are not able to uh, be able to um, get to uh, the information, but also like in a denied, disrupted, intermittent, limited, which you've heard us say DDL um, environment, which 
uh, is basically they have to be offensive and defensive and, and, and at the same time. So they, these are these are the areas that um, I am very much focused on and the team is focused on, but also as a department, we're driving. So I'll leave it at that. That's great. You know, what advice, Lily, would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Oh, my goodness. Do it. Do it. Honestly, um, like I mentioned my journey a little bit earlier and I sort of laid out the ups and downs and not just of, you know, the technical gobbledygook that we talk about, but really real life. And really the why is what makes a difference for me. You know, we're making a difference in people's lives in our country, uh, the safety of our country, the, the you know, the uh, prosperity of our country, uh, our economy and our cyber, our uh, security are go hand in hand. Uh, so to me, the why, you know, my daughter who's a growing leader and future of this country and the world. Um, these are the things that drive me. And I, I would imagine that is the same for everybody. So I really believe um, public service, especially in this time and day and age, uh, is really, really rewarding if you look at it from the why. And, and that really drives me in a way that, I'm making a difference in people's lives and I'm making a difference in the warfighters' lives and their families in this country that has taken me in and my family. Um, honestly, it, it is, it's personal to me, but I can imagine everybody has a story. I'm, I'm not unique. So Lily, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining me today. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me here. It was, it was really great. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Lily Zalecki, Acting Deputy Chief Information Officer, Information Enterprise at the U.S. Department of Defense. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government technology and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.